The book of Proverbs is full of truths about folly. It's full of truths about foolishness and its counterpart, wisdom. Interestingly enough, it was Solomon, King Solomon, who compiled the book of Proverbs, and he himself wrote many of the Proverbs, and he directed them towards his son, Rehoboam. Yet ironically, to the son for whom they were written, for whom they were compiled, Rehoboam chose to ignore many of those truths. In our passage, which is 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 1-24, through 24, and if you have not turned there already, go ahead and turn there. If you need a Bible, we have them underneath the seats. You can grab one there. We are going to see uh, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, in his folly tear apart his father's kingdom, this kingdom that had experienced many years of peace, prosperity, and safety, and just in a matter of days, Rehoboam leads, uh, his actions lead to the division of the kingdom. As we read this text, as after we read it and go through it, I want us to see some of the marks of folly that Rehoboam exhibits and consider how we today may avoid engaging in similar foolish acts ourselves. So let's go ahead. Let's read 1 Kings 12, verses 1 through 24. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt, and they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, Go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men, who had stirred before Solomon his father while he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them, when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, What do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy. But you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day. As the king said, Come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly, and forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy. But I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly, made him king over all Israel. 
There was none that followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only. When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors, to fight against the house of Israel, to restore the kingdom of Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, Say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah, and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, Thus says the Lord, You shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again according to the word of the Lord. So these 24 verses, what they show for us is essentially not actions of a wise king. We have Solomon who is a wise king who is able to have this prosperous kingdom that's unified and it's done so because of Solomon's wisdom, but yet his son is actually the opposite of that. He is absent of any wisdom. And it starts out well. Uh, Rehoboam, he goes north to Shechem to become king. He is, naturally, he's going to be king. He's the heir. And to um, undergo the formal process of taking on the crown, he goes to Shechem. Rather than remaining in Jerusalem, he heads 30 miles north into northern territory to try to gain favor with him, to try to solidify his rule. Just when David took uh, the throne or Solomon took the throne, both of them had to do something to further solidify uh, their rule over the kingdom. There's always a certain amount of instability when a new king ascends to the throne. So Rehoboam goes north, and he is immediately challenged by the northern tribes. They give them a grievance. They tell him, your father put a heavy burden upon us. Now consider all of Solomon's projects that he underwent, the forced labor as well as the many men that he conscripted to serve in the chariots and the horsemen and the soldiers and the overseers, as well as the taxes and, and the food that supplied his courts. And apparently, more than likely, he burdened the northern tribes heavier than the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin. These grievances are probably similar to the grievances that Samuel, the judge and prophet in 1 Samuel 8, warned the elders of Israel about. Hey, you want a king? Okay, but when you get a king, he's going to draft your men to, be, to ride the chariots, to ride his horses, to serve in his military. He's going to take the best of your crops, the best of your fields, and you're going to complain about it. You're not going to like it. And so we have this going on here right now. And Rehoboam, he doesn't handle it well at all. In fact, his actions lead to the death of Adoram. Poor Adoram. Adoram was tasked to be the taskmaster by King David, by Rehoboam's grandfather. Adam has been serving faithfully for many years, several decades, if you uh, just figure out the math. And so he's been serving over the forced labor, labor since um, David. He served all the way through Solomon's reign. And now into the few short days of Rehoboam's reign, Adam ends in an untimely and tragic, painful death. After the death of Adam, the rebellion of Israel takes place. And it starts with the same words that Sheba, uh, in 2 Samuel 20, verse 1, the same words that Sheba, the Benjamite, uh, shouted out when he rebelled against King David. To your tents, O Israel. We have no portion with the house of David. So, when we look at the flaws of Rehoboam's folly, I want to start out by looking at his insecurity. Now, before we get into insecurity, I, I do want to say, you can be insecure for other things other than foolishness, right? I don't want you to think that simply because you are insecure about something, it's because you are a fool. You can be insecure because of a wound 
some sort of drama in your life, some sort of tragic event. There's all kinds of reasons why you can be insecure. But if you are a fool, more than likely, since you lack an anchor of wisdom, you will tend to be insecure. Or often, being insecure will lead to foolishness. And Rehoboam, he is insecure here. He starts out well by seeking guidance, right? Israel comes to him and says, hey, we have these, this issue that we had with your father. We want you to do better. We want you to fix it. And Rehoboam says, okay, wait three days and come back to me. And he goes to where he needs to go, the older generation, the wise counsel. So he seeks counsel, and seeking counsel is the mark of wisdom. Proverbs 1.5 says that the wise hear an increase in learning, and the one who understand, understands obtain guidance. And that's what Rehoboam is trying to do here. However, he rejects the wise counsel of the older generation. And he becomes more like the fool of Proverbs 1.7, where it says, fools despise wisdom and despise instruction. See, Rehoboam, he went to the very men who had served in Solomon's court, who had experience leading the 12 tribes of Israel, 12 tribes that have a history of being rebellious, 12 tribes that have a history of rebellion against the king, especially if the king came from the southern tribes. These men, they weren't just experienced, but if you remember the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, when she came and she blessed Solomon, why did she say her, his servants were blessed? It wasn't because of the wealth and prosperity that they experienced, but it's because of the wisdom they heard. They got to hear the words of Solomon. So Rehoboam, these old men that he's getting counsel from, they heard the wisdom of Solomon in practice, not just like through the book of Proverbs, but they actually saw and heard this in practice. And he, these old men also know the burden that was placed upon the northern tribes. So the northern tribes were making this up or just trying to test um, King Rehoboam. The, the older council could have been like, well, no, we haven't actually burdened them. But they don't. They, they tell Rehoboam, go easy on them. Go light. If you serve them today, they will be your servants forever. Yet he, being a fool, rejects this wisdom. Instead, Rehoboam embraces the counsel of his peers, the men that he grew up with, the men that he went to class with, played on the neighborhood playgrounds with, played backyard football or whatever the sport was back in his day. These are the men that he counseled with because when you ascend to leadership, leadership can be lonely. Read any book on leadership, right? Leadership can be a lonely thing. And Rehoboam, being a young, unwise leader, is perhaps struggling with this. He's insecure with this. And he doesn't want to sever the relationships with the, with the kids that he grew up with, with his best friends. So he asks them, what's your counsel? And they give him poor counsel. The youthful counsel is not wise, and it is more like the counsel that is warned of, again, by Solomon in Proverbs 2, in verses 12 through 15, where it reads, delivering you, and what's delivering you from this is uh, wisdom and understanding. Delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech, who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the paths of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. If Rehoboam had wisdom and understanding, he would have been delivered from this counsel. He would have stuck with the counsel of the older, wise, experienced men, but he doesn't. He is a fool, and in his folly, he listens to the counsel of the youthful generation, of the peers that he is seeking affirmation from. Another mark of Rehoboam's folly is his arrogance. 
Rehoboam's actions that we read here, they are rooted in pride and arrogance related to his position as king. He's a man of power, but he lacks wisdom. He lacks understanding of the role of the king. He thinks as a king, he's entitled. He thinks that he is there to be served rather than be the righteous king that is called to be to serve the people of Israel, to be that humble, suffering servant, shepherd that God expects the king to be. He had an opportunity to obtain wisdom, but he rejects it. He chooses youthful arrogance and pride instead. R.D. Nelson comments on this by saying, Rehoboam chooses slogans over wisdom, machismo over servanthood. And if these slogans don't uh, constitute machismo, um, I don't know what does. I mean, his finger is thicker than his father's thighs. It's a, an expression of like power and might. Like, how dare you come at me? You thought my father's thighs were thick? My finger is thicker than that. My father whipped you with whips. I will whip you with scorpions. So he enjoys the slogans. He enjoys uh, the machismo that the council has given him and its arrogance in his action. His actions mimic those of the wicked men of Psalm 94, verses 3 and 5, where the psalmist writes, O long, how long, O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. Rehoboam, by using these slogans, these words of machismo, he's boasting. It's arrogance. He's seeking to crush his people. Rather, what Rehoboam should have done is he should have been more humble. And again, in light of Proverbs, the book of wisdom, again, that his father wrote to him, he should have humbled himself, as Proverbs 16, 19 tells us. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. And because of his pride, the kingdom does get divided. The spoil does become divided with the proud. It would have been better for Rehoboam to submit himself, to become a servant, to humble himself before the northern tribes and um, made the burden lighter for them. In his arrogance, in his insecurity, Rehoboam's response that he gives to Israel is rash and it is harsh. His answer after three days is an object lesson for the well-known proverb 15.1, where it says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And so he comes to the, Israel comes to him after three days, just as he told them to. He gives them a harsh word. And what does it lead to? Rebellion. It stirs up anger anger. A soft answer could have perhaps avoided it, but he doesn't give them a soft answer. This harsh word leads to rebellion, and it sends one of his own, Adam, to his death. And again, it just, it, I wonder how old Adam was. He must have been, if he was appointed at the age of 20, so some years in David, 40 years of El Solomon, he's got to be over 60. More likely, he's 70, maybe closer to 80 years old when King Rehoboam sends him, and I don't know what he was expecting him to do. I mean, the ten tribes, like, we want nothing to do with you. We're going in rebellion, and he sends this old man, this taskmaster, hey, go, go deal with it. Uh, he wasn't even sent with any military. I'm not sure if he was a, supposed to be a diplomatic envoy or what. The text doesn't tell us. All we know is that he is stoned to death with stones. And then uh, Rehoboam, realizing what's going on, flees to Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jerusalem, 
He doesn't open up diplomatic relations. He immediately gathers 180 chosen warriors to go shed more blood. He prepares for blood. He is not going to try to negotiate. He's not going to try to uh, resolve this in a diplomatic matter. He's not even going to the temple to seek the guidance of Yahweh. He's just gathering his troops, and he's going to war. And there would have been more bloodshed if it had not been averted by God through the prophet Shemaiah, because, again, this thing is of, of God. This action, this motive of Jeroboam is that of the evil men that Proverbs 1 warns against in verses 15 and 16, where Solomon writes, My son, you can just put Rehoboam there. Rehoboam, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. This is where Rehoboam's folly has led him to. This is where his, his desire to appease his peers, his taking the youthful counsel, has led him to. So these actions are that of a foolish man, a man without wisdom. A man without wisdom is a man without anchor. A, a man without wisdom, a fool is a person who is like the wave tossed in the ocean. Every time the wind changes direction, the wave changes direction with it. But the man of wisdom can withstand the shifting, uh, shifting directions of the wind. So Rehoboam, being caught up in his folly, leads to the division of this beautiful, magnificent kingdom. But I want us not to miss something here. Notice verse 15. Why did Rehoboam act this way? Well, there are two reasons. One, Rehoboam is just, he acted like a fool. He was a foolish king in this moment. But more, but more importantly, and more primary, is the sovereign will of God. God used the foolishness of Rehoboam to tear the kingdom apart. The kingdom was not torn apart because of Rehoboam. The kingdom was torn apart because of Solomon's sin of idolatry. Right? We talked about that. But it was through Rehoboam's folly that the kingdom was torn apart. Now, though Rehoboam was used this way by God, it does not abdicate Rehoboam's moral responsibility. This is one of the many examples that we have throughout Scripture where God's will is done, and yet the person or people involved, they maintain their moral responsibility. Now, in light of our own moral responsibility, as well as God's sovereign will, for us today, there is a choice for us. Either we follow the path of Rehoboam, that is, the path of folly, or we follow the path of wisdom. But what is that path exactly? And what wisdom are we to follow? And we should ask the question, is it a path that we can even follow? Is it even possible? Is it? Will, will the will of God even allow us to follow this path? Well, well first answer that question, yes, because the will of God is that no, no one should perish. And the way that you avoid being perished, uh, avoid perishing, is by following the wisdom of God. So, and since we have God's word, his grace before us, clearly it's in his will for us to follow it. So, yes, it is in his will for us to follow it. But maybe you think you look at Rehoboam and you see Rehoboam in yourself. You're like, you know, I struggle with insecurities. I, I lack wisdom. I'm a fool, not just at times, but often. I'm harsh. I don't mean to be, but I'm always harsh towards my spouse, towards my children, towards my coworkers, towards the stranger in the street. I'm harsh when I'm driving the car towards the person who can't hear me being harsh to them. I'm arrogant. 
I'm proud of what I have done. I'm, I'm entitled to things. I deserve things. And so maybe you see this like, but this is who I am and there's nothing I can do about it. And in fathers, husbands, you kings of the castle, you ought to be exceptionally aware of this. For if you exhibit these traits or actions in your own life, consider what may happen. Consider what happened to this magnificent kingdom under such a fool. And then consider what may happen to your marriage, to your family, if you mimic similar actions and traits. So, what must we do? What can we do? Well, first and foremost, we need to lean into the very thing that brought this about for King Rehoboam, the sovereignty of God. We need to press ourselves into it. We must fall into his hands. You may run from God in the idea that you refuse to obey him, but you will never be able to outrun or run away from his sovereign will and power. So instead of running against the will of God, which only leads to condemnation, run with the will of God that leads to life everlasting. And this is the start. This is where we must begin that is to trust in the sovereign will of God. This is where, when you read Proverbs, just pick your verse, pick your chapter. Where does wisdom, knowledge, and understanding always begin? Fear of the Lord. And to fear the Lord is to recognize his power, and it's to recognize to trust it, to obey it, because he's a good God. But yet, at the same time, he's a holy and just God. So that is where knowledge and wisdom begins. So we lean into the sovereign will of God, remembering that God had a plan for you. Before time was created, before time was even a thing, God in eternity had a plan to call you his own, to adopt you as his child, not because you were lovable. In fact, the opposite of it, because you are a child of wrath, deserving of condemnation. You are an enemy to God, and God in his grace had a plan to adopt you as a child, to make you, who is, who is a child of wrath, to be born again, made into a new creation, into a child of grace, adopted into his family, so that he may love you wholly and fully and truly as a holy and just God can love you. And he does all this by the blood of his one and only son, Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with you. This is the sovereign power, the sovereign will we want to rest in, that we want to put our entire life upon. To lean into the sovereignty of God is to lean into the truth, the reality of the cross and the resurrection, the climatic events of all creation and all of time, of which all eternity points to and proceeds from. And again, the cross and the resurrection, the crucifixion, of our Lord and Savior, of the Son of God, is an event that was made possible only by the sovereign power, the sovereign will of God. It has nothing to do with us. We, God used us to put his Son up there, but that's all under the sovereign will of God. So we must throw ourselves down before God, seek his help, seek his wisdom. If he goes all of these links, if he, who did not spare his one and only Son for us, Right? That's the hardest thing. If there's a hard thing for God to do, that's it. Taking his son, the second person of the Trinity, having him take on flesh, live a perfect, obedient life, and then dying a death on the cross that he does not deserve for our sake. That's the hardest thing. If there's a hard thing for God to do, that's it. He's done that. So if he's done that for us, whatever request you have, whatever need you have, 
What, what is that to him? It's easy. He's already done the hard thing for us. So we must throw ourselves into his sovereign power and will. And in doing so, we secure ourselves in him. You struggle with insecurity? Secure yourself in Christ. Make it about him. Your identity, who you are, what you are worth, it's not about what your family thinks of you, whether they, whether they love you, whether they hate you. It's not about what your coworkers think about you. It's not about what, anyone, what social media thinks about you, how many likes you have, how many followers you have, how many you don't have. It's not about the things of this world. It's not about your health. You can be the healthiest person, but if you don't know Christ, you're still going to hell, so what good is it? And at the same time, if you have cancer or some significant affliction or disability, that doesn't make you less than anyone else in this fallen, broken world. Your worth is not found in what you are able to do or cannot do. It's found, one, in the Imago Dei, the image of God that you bear, and your, your identity in Christ. Our security in God is rooted in the protection and trust that we have with God and Him alone. So we don't allow the worries of this world to cause us to equivocate, to cause us to wonder, well, what should I do? The world wants me to do this. If I, if I don't do this, I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to lose my friends. Parents aren't going to talk to me. My siblings, my kids aren't going to talk to me. If I go down this path, if I go down this path, Christ will be honored. He'll be glorified. I will know him more. So we have to trust God because he's the one who can destroy the body in hell as well as the soul and body, the body and soul in hell, not man. We must not get caught up in paranoia and conspiracies. Isaiah 8, verses 11, 13. And note the context of this. This is right before the Assyrians invade, right? So these people, they're panicking because Assyria is about to invade, right? Their well-being, the livelihood, it's all at stake. And this is what God says. For the Lord spoke thus to me, that's Isaiah, with his strong hand upon me, and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. Right? The point here isn't that there aren't things out there that are happening that you're not supposed to believe. That's not the point. The point is, is that regardless of what's going on out here, that's not what you are to fear. And it's not that you're not to fear anything. You need to fear me, Yahweh. You need to fear God. And in doing so, honor him. Be holy with your actions. It's not that when you hear something that you can't make plans and that you can't respond to it appropriately. There's wisdom in that. We are called to discern the times and to act accordingly, right? Like I have things in my head that if certain things were to happen in society, I would act. But the important part is, is that whenever these things happen, we don't act like a fool. We don't act rashly. We don't act harshly. We don't act arrogantly or entitled. We have to maintain the witness of Christ. We can't allow the circumstances of this world to cause us to damage relationships in this world because we're panicking. Panicking, anxiety, rashness, harshness, that's not fruit of the Spirit. But gentleness is, humility is, patience is, joy is. Even if America is burning, you're called to have joy. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't lament the situation. Right? We absolutely should lament suffering and affliction. But we lament with the hope that Christ is going to return and restore all things and that whatever is going on, it's, it's, it's going on under God's sovereign hand. That nothing that's happening here is catching him by surprise and nothing that's happening is going on outside of his sovereign will. So we who are his people 
we have a hope that those who do not know him have. The anchor in all of this, in our identity, is to remember that our righteousness, our means of salvation, it's not ours. We're not the ones to secure it, but it is Christ's. It's his righteousness. It's his work. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul writes, For our sake he made him, God the Father made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the imputation of the righteousness of Christ to us. And then in Philippians 3.8.9, Paul writes, Indeed, I count everything as loss. Now note that. Everything that's lost. There's no asterisk there, right? There's no exception. There's no, everything that's lost except the things that I hold really dear to my heart or my life savings or the things I've really poured my life into. No, everything as lost. And he goes on to give the reason why. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish. So what in your life do you hold on to and you don't count as rubbish? What is one thing that you would not give up if the, if the need came up in the church, God was calling you to do something, like, why well, can't give this up? That's an idol. Whatever that is, that's an idol. Whatever is in your life, that if this was taken from me, right, maybe it's not a physical thing. Maybe it's a principle. My religious freedom. Second Amendment. It's not that you can't fight for these things, right, through the proper uh, channels. But what do they do to you as a person? Do you become panicky? Does it cause your anxiety to go up? Does it make you to wonder what's happening? Like you've lost your sense of identity. When that's happening, whatever that thing is, that's your idol. You need to deal with it. You need to make sure it's not an idol. Make sure that Christ is primary. Paul goes on. He says, he says this, In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, we're willing to lose these things because we seek Christ and we're Christ before anything else. If it takes me losing my freedoms, which I hold dear and precious to me, to know Christ all the more, so be it. God forbid if it takes losing my family to know Christ all the more, so be it. Whatever it takes, whatever suffering that must incur in our lives to know Christ more, that's what we once, reluctantly, right? Because we say that now, and then it's happening. It's like, oh, why am I having this? But if it gets us eternity, if it gets us everlasting life, it is worth it. It may not feel like it in the moment. It never does when you're suffering. But when we get to the other side, and he returns in the fullness of his glory, we will be grateful for it. In other words, our identity, our security is rooted in our justification. This is why the doctrine of justification, that is us being made righteous before God, is so important. This is why Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door. This is why the Reformation happened, was over primarily the doctrine of justification. Who justifies us before God? Because in the Roman Catholic Church, there's no hope for that. There's no way of knowing. You can only take guesses. You can do all the work that you want, and you still won't know if you're truly right with God. But according to Scripture, according to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are told that we know that we have eternal life. All we must do is to look to the Son, and we are justified. Confess, repent of your sins, and you are justified. If you believe in Him, you are justified. You are delivered from your sin for all of time. That's it. And that's where our identity rests in, nothing else. Therefore, we can suffer whatever 
Hardship may come upon us. We can lose whatever we want to. We, we, we end up losing in this life and be okay because we have eternity. We have everlasting life. And there's nothing in this world that's more valuable than that. So our security is rooted in our justification before our Holy Father by the blood of the Father's Holy Son. This truth, this reality, leads us to being humble and not arrogant like Rehoboam was. It's only by the will of God that we are in Christ, right? It's not because of you. It's not because of me. It's only by the will of God that we are in Christ. So we drop any arrogance or pride that we might have. 1 Corinthians 31, that's Paul's whole point when he sums it up with, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Philippians 2, 1 through 4, Paul writes, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Selfish ambition there, you could say do nothing from entitlement. Right, same thing. Maybe you think, well, I've paid my dues. I've done this for you. I've done this for the church. I've done this for, for whatever job I work for. I'm entitled to these things. No, you're not. Not if you're in Christ. Christ has ransomed you with his own blood. You are his. You are a slave to Christ. You're entitled to nothing. Paul continues, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And we have to do that in humility. When you're humble, being humble isn't, it's like a natural, it's not a natural thing for us. Right? You're not humble when you're just being you and you're not giving anything up. Humility comes when you recognize there's a part of you that's like, I want this, I think I deserve this, and, and maybe in some cases you're right. But for the sake of the other person, you lay that down and you humble yourself and you seek to serve the other person. If you have a servant mindset, you're less likely to be angry. You're less likely to be harsh or rash. If Rehoboam had a servant mindset, he would have responded with a soft answer to Israel. A soft answer that would have turned away wrath and not stir up anger. A slave driver is harsh. A servant is not. In our humility, by seeking to have this servant mindset to serve others, this leads us to being gentle with one another, with our spouses, with our children, recognizing that, yes, I am the dad and I have my parental rights, but I'm here to serve the kids. Yes, I am the husband and I have, as ordained by God, I am the headship of this relationship, but I'm the headship to serve my wife, to serve my kids. The patriarchy in Scripture wasn't about the patriarchs being served. It was about nourishment and protection. It was about the provision that they could provide for the women and the children. And that was done through serving them, not from lording over them. That's not the picture that we see in Scripture. And God himself models it best with his son, Jesus Christ, who came to serve us when we should be serving him. In our identity, in our security in Christ, with humility, we can then begin to live as we are called to live. To live righteously as one who is anchored in the person and work of Christ as we imitate the life of Christ. 
But in order for us to do this, we must equip ourselves with his word. We must feast upon his word. We must know his word. If you want to know Christ, if you want to know your Lord and Savior and his will, you have to know his, his word. You have to go to it. You want to see a picture of Christ? If you've ever wondered, what does Christ look like? Read your Bible. This is the best physical picture that we have of Christ on this side of eternity. It's his word. You cannot divorce God's word and who Jesus Christ is. There are people today saying you can do that. The words of Paul, not Christ. The words of Jesus, even though written by apostles, are. Or the Old Testament, we don't need that. We just need the New Testament. We just need the gospel. So actually, you know what? You don't need the scripture at all. You just need to have love and a relationship with other people, and then you will find Christ. That's hogwash. Nothing in scripture says that. That's just people coming up with visions of their own minds. They're like the prophets of Jeremiah 23. Have nothing to do with that talk. It's foolishness. You want to know Christ? Know his word. It's a gift. It's a blessing. It's a means of grace. It's a gift from us. It's a gift from God to us so that we may know him. It allows us to discern the things of this world. It allows us to know what is wise and what is foolish. It keeps us from folly. Like read the book of Proverbs. If you're not familiar with Proverbs or you don't read it enough, I, I, I read it every day, at least a chapter, right? I mean, there's 31 chapters in Proverbs. And so most months you have well, some of the months you have 31, the others you have 30. A chapter a day. It's, it's, and it's, it's amazing how you just, Proverbs just works into life. It just does that. I mean, God's word does that. So read it. Repent when needed and delight in God's word. Because if you don't delight in God's word, his sovereign will will not guide you. Psalm 37, verses 23, 24. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. In other words, if you don't delight in his way, your steps aren't going to be established. But if you delight in his way, your steps will be established. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for Yahweh upholds his hand. And when it talks about delighting in God's word, the psalmist there isn't saying, oh, you better be good at Bible trivia. That's not the point of delighting in his word or knowing your verses, or if you have that Bible reading plan, you delight in checking off those boxes as you complete today's reading. It's not that you can't delight in that. I, I take some satisfaction in going, finished, right? But that's not the point. What the psalmist means here is to delight in God's word means I delight in obeying it. That when I wake up in the morning, I ask God, how are you going to test me today? What temptation am I going to face that you are going to test my faith so that I may know that it is genuine? and that I know that it is true, and that I would have assurance. That's the delight in his way, that whatever God throws at me, I'm going to follow his way. I'm going to endure the hardship, the affliction, the temptation, whatever it may be. That's delighting in it. Delighting in obedience. Again, that's not legalism. That's faithfulness. That is what scripture means. Any times it says delight in his way, that means to actually walk in it. Not just simply look at the map or know what the path is, but to actually walk that path. And if you do that, Whatever you choose to do, it's been established by God. You're choosing, but yet somehow, some way, God's will, he's orchestrating, he's working behind the scenes, and he's guiding your steps. He's guiding your conscience to choose what you need to do for his will and for your good, whatever that may be. When we do this, we also want to serve others in light of his word, right? We come to his word, and we want to serve others. We want to bless people with uh, his word. And if you struggle with a servant mindset, the best way to get a servant mindset is to become one. And we have opportunities here, I hope, serving children's ministry. Maybe like, boy, children's ministry, I really, that's not me. Great. That's a 
that's probably like the best way to get a servant mindset then. It's to serve in the area that like, boy, that seems hard. As long as it's not a dangerous thing to do, go do it, right? Like go serve wherever you need to serve. Serve as a greeter, AV. Just ask if you don't know. We'll, we'll find something uh, for you to do. That means you, if our children's ministry is so full of servants and they serve once every six months, well, so be it. I mean, praise God. We'll do that. But if you struggle to cultivate that servant mindset, become a servant. If you struggle with that in your family, in the home dynamic, start serving. Think of ways that you can serve. Do what you don't want to do. I mean, that's essentially what it is. Like when you think, oh, I see the dishes, sink is full again, oh, I'm tired. If, if I say no, because I'll we'll let somebody else do it, that's a mindset of selfish ambition. Like I, I, I'm, I'm ambitioning to go to the couch, take a nap, to watch the game, to do this. I deserve it after all. But the servant mindset is, nope, I'm going to do the dishes. You're not going to do it begrudgingly or harshly either. You're just going to, you're going to do it. And maybe you need to pray in that moment, right? Prayer will help. Verse memorization will help. Talk to God. Father, I'm going to do these dishes. I don't want to. But Father, I, I love you and you want me to do this. And I love the people I'm doing this for. Help me have a righteous heart in this. Teach me humility. Pray as you, as you do that. Or maybe it's sweeping the floor, watching the kids or yard work, right? Maybe uh, wives, you don't do the yard work. You think that's your husband's job. Well, maybe sometimes the husband would like you to do the yard work from time to time. You can serve him as well. It doesn't go one way. It goes both ways. So consider these things. But as we do this, we are to pray. One for ourselves, and we need to pray for others in light of his wisdom, right? Maybe you have a, a relative, friend, coworker, particular person who just irks you causes you to be arrogant, causes you to act rashly or harshly. First, pray for yourself. Ask God, Father, help me with this. What he, what he or she's doing is really just, ugh, really grinding my gears, really making me bitter. Pray to help you with that, help you to have the perspective that you need to have. And then pray for them. Father, work in them. Help me communicate to them. Help me share the gospel with them. Help me show them, uh, talk to them about how this is, this is bothering me. Work in their lives too, so they would be obedient to you and honoring to you, if not to me. Because especially for, for parents, if you're trying to get your disobedient child to be obedient to you, have them be obedient to God first. They do that, they will be obedient to you. And you should be okay with that, right? We want them to obey God first and foremost. We want them to be close to God. And that should come in light of them being obedient to us. But maybe your prayer should be more focused on, Father, help them know you and obey you. If, if anything, even if they don't listen to me, help them at some point to obey you, to know you, and use me as you will in that. Help me to be gentle towards them, but help me also discipline them in a way that gets them to know you. Humble yourself. Don't make it about, I'm the father. I, you ought to listen to me. Now, sometimes those conversations, they are rooted in scripture. There's a place for it, but do so with gentleness and patience. And I know that's easier said than done. I myself uh, often struggle with that, as my kids can attest in the back. If you struggle with anger, with insecurity, with pride, go to Christ. Go to him. Go to Calvary. That's where the perspective needs to begin. If you struggle with this, in that moment, when you can feel the harshness, the anger, the arrogance boiling up, look to the cross. See your Lord and Savior covered in blood for your sin and for the way you're acting in that moment. Get perspective. Go to his word. 
Don't go to the best sellers at the bookstore, right? You go to some of these Christian bookstores, right? Like uh, Barnes & Noble's not a Christian bookstore, but they have a Christian section. Or if you go to LifeWare or Mardell's that are explicitly Christian, their best sellers are Christian, right? T.D. Jakes, Joel Olstein, Christine Kane. These are people, Stephen Furtick, you should not listen to. It's garbage. They're just interested in making money. Stop looking to these books. Look to him and him alone. Isaiah 45, 22. God says, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. You want to turn to Jesus? Turn to him. Turn to his word. You don't need to be turning to some modern day book about the topic. Turn to his word. Let his word, not some devotional, be your guide. It's not that you can't do devotional, but don't let the devotional replace the word. Have it come alongside the word. The devotional is a side dish or a dessert. His word is the main course. You can't survive on these side dishes. You need to survive on the main course, his word. And especially ignore the books with the title, Jesus Calling. It's hogwash. Jesus isn't calling you through those books. All right? Those are just ramblings of a young lady and other people because they have spinoff after spinoff. That's not the word of God. The word of God is found here. And if you want emotion, like if you like, but it speaks to my emotions, read the Psalms. They're incredibly emotive. Read them. And if you struggle with intimacy with God, maybe you start in the Psalms. Some of the most intimate poetry is found in the Psalms. Read that daily right after you read your Proverbs. And you will be blessed by it. If you already know Christ and you think you don't normally struggle in this area, well, bring Christ to others who don't know Christ or who do struggle in this. Because people who struggle with harshness, arrogance, being rash and angry all the time, you have to wonder if they're saved. Because that's not the fruit of the Spirit. That's not becoming of the new creation. So challenge them in that. Stop hiding the treasure of grace of which God has blessed you with. Bring it out and share it with those in need. When you eat something that's delicious and you've had your full of it, and if you don't eat the rest of it, it's going to spoil, you're going to share it with people, right? Like, if you go to work, if you're, if you're loving, right, some of you just will just eat it anyway and keep it to yourself, but if you're loving and unselfish, you share what is good, of which you've been given plenty of, to others, because you want them to experience it. So why not do that with Christ? Stop being unloving and selfish. Be loving, humble, and bold, and share the word of God with others. Not for the sake of morality, right? We don't share Christ because we want somebody to leave the bottle, though that may happen. We share Christ so that they would be convicted of their sin and they may enter into everlasting life. It is a fool's game to pray about evangelism, to pray about witnessing the gospel, but always remaining silent and hoping that your deeds, your lifestyle will spur others on to ask questions. Now, of course, God, as our text shows this day, God still uses fools for the sake of his sovereign purpose. So he might actually bring somebody to Christ in that manner. But evangelism, faithful evangelism, that is an activity of the wise, not of the fool. Because the wise person knows what they have. They know the worth of it. And they know the wisdom of sharing it. They know that by sharing this good news, it helps with the servant mindset. It keeps them humble. It's an act of ministry, and I don't think there's anything more humbly than ministry for Jesus Christ. It's an act of love. It's an act that seeks the betterment of others while prioritizing the glory of God above all things. It is the act of the good and faithful servants, of which Rehoboam in our text today failed to be. Let us pray.
Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for this example of foolishness of which we can be warned of. Father, I ask that you would help us um, in our own lives when it comes to foolish things that we may get caught up in. Help us with our insecurities, our arrogance, our harshness, things that may make us rash towards others. Help us to be loving and patient towards our family members, towards our co-workers, towards anyone that you put in our lives, Father. Help us to seek every opportunity, every engagement to be an opportunity for gospel proclamation. Father, we ask this because we want to know your son more. We want to be assured of our salvation. We want our faith to be tested and to be found genuine. Father, help us with the hard things in life. Help us to pray for the things that we should pray for, but we don't want to pray for because we, we shudder at the answer that you might give us. Give us courage, give us peace, give us joy for each and every day that you bring before us. Help us to choose each and every day to serve you in all of our ways, all of our ways. Help us to count all things lost, not that we can't enjoy the things, but we don't hold on to them with a closed fist. And we thank you for what you have blessed us with, with our health, with the food that we get, with the provision that you put in our lives for, for shelter, for the relationships that we have, Father. Help us to be good stewards with whatever we have, with whatever we are blessed with. And whatever we are not blessed with, Father, help us to be, to be grateful, recognizing that your grace is sufficient. Do what is necessary to help us to understand that, to know that, for your glory. Help us to lean into your sovereign will, recognizing you are a good God. Even in the midst of affliction and suffering, you are a good God. Help us to have the perspective of Job at the end of his book. And in that, Father, help us to humble ourselves before you as we seek to serve others. Help us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Help us to love those who are lost and who do not know you, who do not know Christ and need to see Christ. Yes, by the way that we live, but most importantly, through his word. Give us wisdom. Give us confidence. And forgive us for our sins, our iniquities, and our trespasses and our failings, Father, in this endeavor. But give us the confidence that we have knowing that we have an advocate, your son, who stands before you each and every day. And he's able to do that because of the blood that he shed. Father, we would ask that you would bless the cup, you would bless the bread that's before us here that we are going to partake of here soon. We ask that as we come to your table that beforehand we would confess any sin that we're holding on to, any idol that we think can sit at this table with your son. Help us to give it up to you so you may destroy it. Help us to be reconciled to one another. Help us not to have any animosity. If we have animosity towards one another, help us to resolve that first. Give us the courage, the boldness to do that, to say what needs to be said. Help us to have a clean conscience, and if we don't have a clean conscience, Father, help us to abstain from the table, to deal with what needs to be dealt with and come to it next week joyfully. Father, we ask that the bread and the cup would be a blessing to all those who partake this morning, that it would be a proclamation and a witness of what your Son has done. Father, we thank you for all these things, and we ask all this for your glory by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.